Today we are going to be in Mark 12, verse 13 through 17. I will read our text for us, and then we'll pray. Verse 13 says this, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. May we render to you what we owe you. God, we are made in your likeness and your image. May we give you all of our lives today. I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would show us how we should not pursue you, not to trap you, that we shouldn't come to you as formalists or rebels, but we should come to you as God and seeking to give you everything that we have because we are yours. God, I thank you for your grace in Christ when we don't give you what we deserve and how Christ has already met every need of ours. He has already satisfied all of your demands. And now we come to you by faith in him. Lord, we love and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. If you have lived in the United States for the last five years, and I believe everyone in here has, and if you are in some form of a political or a Christian sphere, you might have noticed in the last five years that this text is greatly debated. It usually is debated over the issues of things like Christian nationalism, whether the United States was founded as a Christian nation, whether a Christian should bring their Christianity to politics or whether they shouldn't. And so there's a lot of things that come from this text. But I want to say, while there is a lot of debate, and I think there are some things to be learned from this text about that debate and those issues That's not first and primarily about what this text is about. And to say that it is about that is somewhat anachronistic. It's rewriting history, placing our modern time upon what Jesus is really dealing with. And what Jesus is dealing with is similar in this text, but it's not the same. And here is really what Jesus is getting to. And here's what I want you to see from our text today. And what Mark, I believe, wants you to see in this text is he wants you to see the relationship between the state and God, and he wants you to see that there is a reason for the state. And there is even an authority for the state. But what he most importantly wants you to see is your relationship to God. And he wants to teach you what you should, as he says, render, or pay to, or give to God. And I ask that as you listen to this text, and as you think about this text, you think about that question. What am I rendering to God? 
What am I giving to God? And I pray for application throughout this time that you would render yourselves to God. So would you do that today, long run? Would you render yourselves to God? Let's think about the text for a moment. I'll rehearse our context for us before we get into it. Jesus has essentially been causing an uprising in Jerusalem for the past chapter. If you had been living in his time and you would have been seizing, seeing the thing that Jesus was doing, you would have been saying, oh, he's an anarchist, he's a rebel, oh, he's just trying to stir things up, he's a pot stirrer around this area in Jerusalem. Because just look at the things that he's doing. He's entering in Jerusalem and it's a royal entry and everybody's bowing down to him and honoring him as if he's a king. And it's like everybody has forgotten that there's actually a true king over the land who is Caesar. But they forget about that when Jesus comes in. And then you have Jesus entering into the temple and he says, this is not how you're supposed to worship. And he ends up kicking everybody out of the temple and saying, this is how you're supposed to worship. Supposed to worship through prayer. And then the religious elite, the scribes, the elders, and everyone else comes up to him and begins to question him, and he actually questions them and proves that they actually have no authority. Jesus has turned the establishment on his head. The establishment that was in Jerusalem, which was ruled by Rome, and that was governed by the authorities under him, and then the religious authorities, they have just been shown that they have no authority whatsoever. And the people who are seeing Jesus now, they're just seeing him as a rebel. And so what do they want to do? What do the people want to do? They want to take back their authority, both the seculars, the people from Rome, and also the religious people, and they want to convince everybody else Jesus is a fraud. Or worse, they actually want to put Jesus to death. And that's where we come to our text today. Look at verse 14 with me, sorry, verse 13 with me. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And I'll keep reading through verse 14 or part of it. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So, some men have just approached Jesus, or moreover, they have been sent by other men to Jesus. The people who were sending these men to Jesus are probably the scribes, they're probably the elders, they're probably the chief priests, because they just found out that their religion, their authority was debunked. And so now they go to some other men. But these are unusual men to be grouped together. They are the Herodians, and they are the, they are the Pharisees. These two groups that they come to and they say, you go and talk to Jesus and you go trap him in the things that he's been doing. But I want to say, even though it seems as though the Herodians and the Pharisees are just entering into the story for the first time, they've been hanging around and waiting for a while. I won't have you look at the text, but some of you might remember earlier in Mark 3, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand in front of some Pharisees and some Herodians, and as soon as they see it, they want to come up with a plot to kill him. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians, they've been sitting back, They've been waiting. They've been thinking, when is Jesus going to fall into a trap? When is he going to say something that we can get him on? And they see here is their opportunity. But I want to notice the group that has come together. 
It's quite an unusual group of people who have met together to ally against Jesus. You have the Pharisees, who are the religious people of their day. They are really the formalists of their day. And you have the Herodians, who are really the secular leaders. They're kind of like the aristocracy of their day. And you can even just hear by their name, Herodians, they're followers of Herod, and Herod was that one who killed John the Baptist, and so you know that Herodians who follow Herod don't want anything to do with the religious people. But yet, Pharisees, Herodians, tag-teaming it together, what's going on? Why have they met together? It's a strange combination to think about. But what this text is trying to teach us, and what I think this group pairing together is trying to teach us is this. Both those who are legalistic, those who are all about formalism, like the Pharisees, who want to be seen for their good deeds, who want to be recognized for the way they pray, the ones who are described as white-washed tombs, the legalists, and then the lawless, the aristocrats, the corrupt, the ones who are something like a politician, or even better than yet, I come from Illinois, an Illinois politician. If you don't know what that means, it means a corrupt politician. Just go to Illinois and you'll find out. They're together, and they're buddies. What's going on? Well, the reality is, is that the legalist and also the lawless, they both hate Jesus. And the reason they both hate Jesus is because of his righteousness. Hear this and understand this. This is very important, especially for our church and especially for the world we're living in today. Because sometimes we think that there is one kind of person who goes to church, has it all together, goes to Sunday school, does all the external things, and they love Jesus. We're going to talk about that person in a second. But then we think that the other person, the lawless, oh, they're rebelling, they're living their own ways, they're living in a corrupt way, they're just after power like these aristocrats in this chapter, and they hate Jesus. But what we want to see is that there is the legalist impulse in people and there's the lawless impulse in people and they both hate real righteousness. Why would they both hate real righteousness? Here's why. For the legalist, righteousness, especially in Jesus' case, shows them their hypocrisy. It shows them that they're all about formalities. It shows them that they're all about looks. It shows them that they're all about being seen. That what matters most to them is not about who they are, but rather how they present themselves. Remember, whitewashed tombs. And then you got Jesus over here who is thoroughly and undoubtedly and wholly consistent. He's not a whitewashed tomb, even though he's white on the outside, but his insides are white as well. And by white, I'm just men in purity. He's, he's pure completely. And these Pharisees, they see this guy and they say, oh, look at him. He's so good, he's so righteous, and he shows us that we're hypocrites and we're fallen. But the lawless as well, the lawless, they see Jesus and they see his righteousness, and what do they see? It's very clear, they see themselves staying next to him and they see the standard that he sets for them and they say, we fall short. And what oftentimes people do when they see the law and they see God's righteousness, they see it and they say, I hate it. And that's where both these parties are at. They hate Jesus because Jesus' righteousness shows them their faults. To the legalist, the formalist, and to the lawless. 
And I want to take a quick break to just say, and this is what's going to put Jesus to death. The fact that Jesus is actually truly righteous is what is going to put him to death. He's going to be tried as someone who's unrighteous. But the legalists, the Jews, the Pharisees, they're going to hate him because he's so righteous. And the lawless, they're going to say, he keeps telling us about our sin and that we've got to repent. And this is exactly what's going to take Jesus to the cross and put him to death, where he is actually going to accomplish his plan to be the Savior of the world. And I want to invite you, if you have not believed in that message, to believe in it today, to trust in that good news, that Jesus is going to be sent to the cross because of the legalist and because of the lawless. And he's even going to die for them. But on this side, because we've passed the cross, right? I want to deal with us, especially us being lawless and us being legalists. I will talk about the lawless for a quick second, even though I don't think that's probably most of our church, even though it's possible that maybe you guys are going absolutely crazy on the weekends. And, you know, I was talking with some of our members this past week about my college days and going to Bonnaroo and doing wild things and being lawless. I just don't really think that's so much you, though. But I want to say this. If you're lawless, if you're the one who's saying, I see God's law, I see his righteousness, and I hate it, I want to tell you, you might hate it, but man, God loves you. And God has presented a way for you to come to him even though you hate him. Romans 5.8, Jesus Christ died while we despised him, while we hated him, while we put him to a cross. Jesus Christ died to you and shows his love for you so that you can come to him. And so the person who's lawless, who's saying, I'm going to live however I want, Jesus extends his mercy. And I would just say to you, Jesus doesn't treat you as you treat him. Come to him. But for the formalist, and this is, I think, the great danger of being in this room. I think this is the great danger of American Christianity, of evangelical Christianity, is we think we're righteous. We think we're right with God. We think we're going to heaven. We think we know Jesus because we do all the external things right. We keep all the traditions. And I've emphasized this throughout the book of Mark because Mark is just tearing down all these traditions over and over again. But I want to tell you again that if your religiosity is based upon what people think about you or your religiosity is based upon what you do, as far as going places, not completely what you do. What you do matters. We'll talk about that in a second. But as far as going to places, looking a certain way, looking like you have it together, knowing your Bible and quoting facts just like the Pharisees would do, and you say, yes, that's my righteousness. I've mentioned the seminary I go to. This is a great pitfall that we can fall into over the seminary as we get so much head knowledge and our minds get so inflated and we think, oh, we know so much, so we're righteous. That's not righteousness. That's an external righteousness. That's a formalism that doesn't actually save anyone. What true righteousness is, is first. First one thing, then we'll talk about for ourselves. What true righteousness is, it's Jesus, who is holy, pure, innocent, undefiled, never did anything wrong, but not just that, also obeyed every single law and met all of its demands. That's righteousness. But righteousness for us, you will never meet that standard. So just 
take that off your shoulders if you're thinking, oh, i got to be like Jesus. That's not what the gospel is about. Righteousness for us is two things. And it slices right through the middle of legalism and lawlessness. And it's this. It is recognizing your sins and abhorring your sins. Understand this. It is recognizing your sins, asking for forgiveness, and then repenting of your sins. This past week, Wednesday night, I was talking about some of the sins that I had struggled with before coming to Christ. You can talk to the people who were there. It had to do with my mouth and how I love to cuss. But then I talked about how that sin had continued on even into my mind, not so much the way I talk. Hopefully you guys don't hear me cuss so much, but I, don't, I try not to at least. But sin carries on. And what matters very much is not so much that sin carries on. Yes, sin should be cut off. I don't talk the way I used to, and I try not to think the way I used to. But what really matters and what really shows righteousness is by how you think about your sin. Do you think about your sin in the legalist perspective of like, oh, well, I sinned today, but I'll go to church tomorrow and I'll be good. That's not righteousness. That is not righteousness, even though a lot of people think it is. Or do you kind of say, oh, well, I sinned so I can sin some more, like the lawless. That's not righteousness either. Neither of them are. Righteousness is first. And I'm not saying don't go to church, don't do those things. I'm saying righteousness is a recognition of your sin, a confession of your sin, a recognizing that you, haven't done, that, you, that you have done something wrong and then running from it, walking a different way. And it actually changes who you are. And you begin to be concerned more about who you are, more concerned about what you actually do as far as morally speaking, not about how you appear, because what matters to you is being like Jesus. The legalist hates that. And if you're falling into a category of formalism, which I would just want to, I want to push this on this church because I fear that that's what many people have fallen into at this church. Whether I'm not saying just now, but in the past and whenever, is run to a real righteousness. Don't fall short for a righteousness that is man-made, that is like the Pharisees who like to be seen for their religion. And like to be acknowledged, but one that is true, one that is in love with God. Now, to our text. Notice how these men approach Jesus. It's quite ironic what they approach Jesus with. Because they neither believe it, nor do they actually want these things to be true. Remember, you got the formalist who is all righteous on the outside, and then you got the lawless who rebels against the law. You got the Herodians. And listen to what they say about Jesus, if they're praising him. But remember, they don't even like righteousness. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They say, Jesus, we see you. You're a man of good, good um, repute. You have a good attitude and you have a good name about yourself. You're an honest man and you don't actually listen to others when they try to tempt you and to sway you, even though it's ironic because they're going to try and tempt him right here. And you're always doing what's right. But oh, how easy. And this is just amazing. It's so interesting to think about these people saying these things as if those are good things and if they're things they like, but yet their hearts and their souls hate them. 
And if there's ever a picture of how legalism can creep into your mind and how you can speak one thing but live a completely other way, it's right here. Even men who said of Jesus, you are true, you are righteous, you are a man of integrity, you never do wrong, oh, their hearts were so far from them. And understand this, the words of your mouth do not mean that you truly possess Jesus. These men said all the right things of Jesus, but oh, they were so far. And look at their motives of what they want to say. Look at what they want to do to Jesus. Yes, words matter and belief matters. But what matters is a consistent life, a consistent righteousness following up with it. Now, they're coming to Jesus, and I told you they're coming to trap him. That's what the text tells us, and they are going to, it looks like, really trap him. They're going to put him in a difficult situation. This is what the second part of verse 14 says. They ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, I want to say to us, this, even though this text is oftentimes rehearsed, it's talked about and people say these things all the time, this text is very different to us or very foreign to us and it doesn't really seem like that big of a deal, the question they're asking. But I want to tell you, this text and this question and that they're asking and the answer to it is really a landmine just waiting for Jesus to step on it. It's something like this. If you asked a question today, do you think that the government should pay for people's um, debt for college? So the debt that they had out of college, do you think the government should pay for that? I imagine where most people would stand in this room, but I don't know that. But I imagine in our culture that if you answered, yes, the government should pay for that, you would be praised by one side of our culture, but the other side would say, boo, we hate them. But if you said, no, the government should not pay for people's college debt, one side would say, yes, go, and then the other probably said, boo, right? You're going to be loved and you're going to be hated by one of them, right? And that's the same right here. It's the exact same for Jesus. There's not a win-win for Jesus, it appears. We'll see that in a moment. But it appears that he is trapped once again. You remember how they trapped him earlier with the question about John the Baptist? He slid it out of that one, of course. We'll see what he does with this. But let's just take a look into what could happen if he answers one way or the other. So the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus answers they should pay taxes to Caesar, the people who are following Jesus and the people who have been listening to him are going to be really mad. This tax that was going on in Jerusalem and that the Romans enforced was very lucrative and it took great advantage of the people who were in Jerusalem and it was enforced because the Romans had actually taken Jerusalem under their authority. So a little bit of history for you. Before this time, Jerusalem was not under Roman authority, but Rome essentially came in and took over Jerusalem. And then in their process of taking over Jerusalem, they said, hey, because we're invading you now and it costs money to pay our troops and it costs money to support the people who we're sending, we're going to actually tax you and make sure that you pay for these people who are actually over you. Imagine that. Imagine that scenario that you're a Jew and you're paying a tax to support the person who's actually in some ways enslaving you. And if Jesus says, yeah, it's okay to pay that tax, what are you going to think? What's going to happen? Are you going to follow Jesus? What are you going to do? But if you answer the other way, the outcome could be way worse. And it actually probably would be way worse. 
Because if you say no, you should not actually pay tax to Caesar. Guess who's going to come after you? Caesar. And it's going to be worse than human rejection. It's actually going to be death. And so put yourself in this circumstance of Jesus. Oftentimes we think, oh yeah, Jesus has got this. But if I was in this circumstance, I'd be like, oh dang. What do I say? I mean, one way I'm going to lose all the people and they're going to hate me. and I'm going to have no following, no ministry any longer. Or if I answer the other way, I'm going to get shut down. It'd be like if I had to take a controversial take on an issue and in one way either all of you guys were going to leave me or the government was going to shut me down. Backs you up into a corner, right? Backs you up into a difficult circumstance. But Jesus, as he does over and over and over again, he defies the wisdom of this world with the wisdom of God. And he is truly, unbelievably wise. Listen to what he says Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them. So he says, I know you're not coming to me because you think I'm righteous. You're trying to prove I'm unrighteous. Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now just real quick for you, I meant to actually bring a coin in here, but I didn't bring a coin. But um, you could just think of a quarter and you could think of an inscription on it and you could think of a face on it. And that's essentially what he's doing with the denarius. He's saying, hey, bring me the denarius, okay? And I'll just say something also to you about Jesus right here. It's interesting. It's interesting that he has to ask for a denarius. It's just one day's wage. It means Jesus doesn't really have anything. It's crazy to think that Jesus, poor, no money, is about to overthrow the whole Roman government who has all money, all riches, all power. And so he asks, please bring me a denarius. And then he asks this question in verse 16. They brought one to him. Whose likeness and inscription is this? this?" And they said to him, Caesar's. And so he holds up the coin to them and they answer Caesar. What's interesting though is, is in Mark, he only includes the Caesar part. And I completely believe that Mark only meant to say Caesar. But it's interesting that he doesn't actually include what's inscribed on the coin. Now this is something that is historically validated. It's historically affirmed. You can find lots of denariuses from this point of what would actually be on there because you would have Caesar on the coin, but then you would also have the inscription that read this. Tiberius Caesar Augustus. Son of divine Augustus. Think about that for a moment. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. That was on one side. And then if you flip the coin over, you would actually probably have Caesar's wife or potentially Caesar himself again, and then it would say the priest. Start thinking about that just for a moment. And what the significance and the meaning of that coin actually is. The coin is saying on the front side, Caesar who is the son of God. He's claiming to be divine. He's not just claiming to be an earthly king. He's claiming to be the heavenly king. This is a direct assault to who Jesus is. But then on the other side, the priest Not only is he king, he's also the priest who can intercede between God and man. This coin that Jesus is holding is idolatrous and blasphemous. 
The coin is claiming that Caesar is God and it's also claiming a heresy. That some man can intercede between God and man. When we hear about this coin and we hear about the idolatry of Caesar and the coin because this coin definitely represents what Roman authority and Roman rule would be like, we just know it's pagan. Sometimes we think, and this isn't a bad thought, it's true. Oftentimes people say like, man, like we're living in such a terrible age. We're living in such a crazy country right now and we're living in a post-Christian United States. Man, that is nothing like this. None of you guys are driving around with license plates that say, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. Anybody? I don't think so, at least. So none of you guys aren't worshiping a false god, a pagan god. And then you got the other side who's saying, oh, and he's a priest as well. Do any of you have that on your quarters at home? I don't think so. And so when we come to this text, sometimes we just think, oh man, like that wasn't that bad. No, this is bad. This is completely pagan. They had other gods who they worshipped. We are living in a post-Christian United States. This isn't post-Christian. This never was Christian. So what's Jesus going to do? Sometimes I think with that understanding, I think Jesus is just going to smash it down and he's going to say, this is idolatry, this is blasphemy. But he doesn't. He says something very strange and unusual. And he says something that I think even defies our logic and our comprehension of how we should be as Christians in the world. He says this, and I'm going to bring out two ideas from this text. He says, first, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so he says the coin. Look at this coin right here. Give it to Caesar. It's his. He's the God of it. He's the king of it. Pay it to him. It's not mine. Just give it away. And we'll come to Jesus' second statement in a moment. But what I want you to realize here is Jesus is actually giving an official authority to the nation state. Understand that. Jesus is teaching that the nation state actually has authority under God's providential hand. And I'm not going to look at the text, but you can see another text that expounds this idea in Romans 13, verses 1 through 6, later if you want to look at a text. And what Jesus is trying to teach is that, yes, I recognize Rome, I recognize Caesar, and Caesar actually does have some real jurisdiction. And as for that, pay him. So what does that mean for us as Christians? Sometimes we have this idea that we just need to rebel. We need to fight against the culture. We need to bring back Christian America as if, or if, as, as if it was ever a Christian America. But this is saying, pay to the nation state what is the nation state. I'm sorry for those of you who wanted me to say you don't have to pay taxes this year. You gotta pay taxes. And I want to just step away for a quick second from this text and just say, I am no political theologian and I am no expert on how to handle theology and politics. But I want to say at least this. This at least means that the state has authority to where Christians under the state do submit to some extent. Notice I say to some extent. There is an extent. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment because of what Jesus says afterwards. But it also means there's a level of respect as well. 
to the nation that they function with. And where that begins and where that ends, that's divisive and it gets divided and people get angry about it. But I want to say as Christians, living in the United States of America, we should have some level of submission to the nation state. to what Jesus is telling us to do. But that's not all Jesus said. There's something much greater than what he says after it. So we're going to see that. Because sometimes what people do is they just read that text and they're like, okay, so this is the nation state's authority and then there's God's authority over here. But Jesus is actually not going to say that either. Listen to what he says and I want you to really think about his words here. After he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, it's as if he says, render to God the things that are God's. Now just come in for a moment. I want to show you something. I want you to turn on your minds for a second. We're going to do some biblical thinking, some biblical theology for a moment about this text. Jesus has just said, look at this thing. Image of Caesar. And it's all about him being God. Paid him what he's worth. But to God, render to God what is God's. What did he just hold up? An image and the likeness of Caesar. Who is in the image of God? Who is in the image of God? Me, you. Every single person. Listen to what he's claiming. This is amazing. He's saying, oh, Caesar, (laughs) this little guy right here? Yeah, give him it. But pay to God the things that are God's, and whoever is in his image deserves to pay that to God. Listen to what he's saying to both the Herodians and the Pharisees. He's saying, if you're an image bearer, which you are because every single person comes after Genesis 1.26 where God said, let us make man in his image and let us make woman in our likeness. Creating the male and female to rule and have dominion over all the earth. He's saying, you need to pay that to God. See, Jesus isn't saying that there's some kind of authority over here that Caesar has, and then there's this other authority over here that Jesus has. No, it's the same thing he's been claiming throughout these last two chapters, and that is this, that Jesus' authority is superior to all because every single person, even Caesar, and this is so amazing because he's just mocking the coin right now. He's saying, this is a man. And he actually owes me or he deserves to render me what he is, due, what I am due. And thanks more about just biblical theology about Genesis 1, Genesis 2, because that's where we hear that man and woman are created in the image of God. What is he telling them to do? Render to things the things that are due to God. I think this is his idea that he's thinking with from Genesis 1 through 2. I think he's thinking first, in your family, notice the first thing that God says when he creates um, Adam, when he creates man and woman, he says they are to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all the earth. That's a procreative relationship that they're supposed to have and spread throughout the rest of the earth. And then in the garden, when God takes the woman out of Adam's side and forms her, he puts them together to be united, to be knit together so that what God has brought together, let no man separate. I want to say the first thing I think that he's bringing us back to is in our lives, even though it's over all of our lives, we are supposed to render to God our families. 
obedience to him, authority to him. But it's not just that. It's also our occupation. Remember why God put Adam in the garden. He put him in the garden to work and keep the garden and to name all the animals and to exercise authority over it and then spread the dominion over all the face of the earth so that in his occupation, he would even render God what he is due. And then in addition to this, in his morals, in his ethics, he's going to render God what he is due because he is not supposed to eat the fruit of the tree. If there's a picture of what image bearing looks like, first and foremost, it's definitely in Jesus. So you could just say, just be like Jesus. But I want to also say, you can find it back in the garden. Rendering to God what is his is giving your whole life to him. Rendering to Caesar, that's some money there. Paying some taxes. But rendering to God is a whole life because you are stamped with his image, stamped with his likeness. And he's saying, now give me yourself. Give me you. And that's what God wants from you. It's interesting that he says this in the face of a formalist, a Pharisee, isn't it? Because the Pharisee would be like, oh, I give you everything already. I go to temple, I wear the right clothes, I pray in front of everybody. And he'd say, no, I want everything. I want every aspect of your life. Long run. We need to render to God the things that are His. And what is His? You. In Psalm 50, I forget which verse it is, it's on the slides. It says, The earth in all its fullness are, this is God speaking, mine. And I'm going to be honest, most of the time we live like we're God. We think it's all mine. No, none of it is. It's all his. It's not Caesar's. And this even means that in the relationship to Caesar, even in the way that we live in relation to the nation states, we got the American flag hanging up right there. I'm thankful to be an American, and I appreciate America and all that we have and the freedoms we share, and it's fine that we have the American flag up there. But I just want to say, your obedience is not to that first. It's not primary to that. And if you're saying, oh, I'm primarily American, you're missing what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying that the nation state is subservient to the primary authority over all authorities, and that is Jesus, who everything is owed. Everything. So as you go throughout this week, I don't actually have a specific practical application. But as you go through your home with your family, as you go into your occupations, as you function morally, the way you talk, the way you live with people, I want you to think this verse. Render to God what is God's. Because God owns you. Oh, he does. He does. And we want to live in likeness with it. We don't want to live as the image of Caesar. We want to live as the image of God. So as you go throughout this week, I would encourage you to have this verse on your mind. I guess that would be the specific. Memorize it, meditate on it if you can. And think about, for me, this is probably the big one for me, is in my family. It can be easy for me when I go home to just shut down and think I'm just going to take a break, kick the shoes off, would actually take care of the kids. Oh, selfish me. 
That's not rendering to God the things that are God's. Rendering to God the things that are God's is living out his image, living in the way he intended me to live, dying to self, and showing I'm made in his image. And I think the big test is, if we actually live like this, someone's going to notice. And someone's going to see, and they're going to be like, man, you're different. And maybe even if they're a Christian, they might say, you remind me of someone. Because you might start living in his image. So long run, render to God what is God's. Let's pray. God, you own all things. All the earth is yours. From the birds of the sky, to the animals of the hills, to the fish of the sea, you cry, mine. And all its fullness thereof is mine. God, I pray that we would fall in accordance with bearing your image and we would render to you our lives. We would not cut off a specific area of our life. We wouldn't cut off our family from you. We wouldn't cut off our occupation from you. We would not cut off our morals from you. But instead, you would rule over them all. Please rule over us. We love and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we'd love to invite you to 